Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Previously on The Report. The real estate tycoon is betting the value of his brand name will help him continue to strike lucrative deals. The president's former fixer pleads guilty on a charge of lying to Congress about a plan for a Trump Tower in Moscow. Once it's known that Trump Jr. wants to have this meeting, they start setting everything up behind the scenes. Don Trump Jr. came into the room and walked behind his father's desk. We have no dealings in Russia. We have no projects in Russia. We have nothing to do with Russia. Obviously highly sensitive information, but as part of Russia and its government support of Mr. Trump. If it's what you say, I love it. It's the morning of April 25th, 2016 at a hotel in London, a Maltese professor meets with a young foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign. The two have been in touch over the past few weeks. The professor has been helping the young man connect with Russian officials. Now, over breakfast, the professor lets him in on a secret. On a recent trip to Moscow, high-level government officials told him that the Russians have dirt on Trump's opponent. What was the dirt in question? Emails, he says. They have thousands of emails. This is The Report, Episode 5, Overtures from Russia. Candidate Trump at the time nodded at me. It was open to the idea. Fake theories related to the dossier. None of those made any sense whatsoever. This is an absurd attempt by the Clinton campaign to try off of what the real issue is. Uh, you have an individual here who has openly bragged about his ties to Russia and Russians. I know the best people. We're going to use our best people. The best people. The best people. The full story of the Trump campaign's contacts with Russia during the 2016 election is sprawling and complex. The Mueller report spends more than 100 pages detailing contacts between the Trump campaign and various Russians, Russian government officials, Russian citizens, people who are cutouts for Russian intelligence, Russian businessmen and oligarchs. The sheer volume of contacts is noteworthy, as is the volume of lies the campaign tells about those contacts. This episode focuses on just three individuals connected to the Trump campaign and their contacts with Russia. You've probably heard their names before. George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, and Paul Manafort. For most of the 2016 election, The Trump campaign is being shunned by Republican foreign policy experts. Part of the reason the Trump campaign can attract the normal talent is because of Trump's warm words for Russia and Vladimir Putin. Putin said Donald Trump is brilliant. And the people I was debating against, they said, 
we would like you to disavow that statement. I said, you think I'm going to disavow that statement? Are you crazy? Trump praises Putin, and he can't convince mainstream foreign policy Republicans to work for him. In fact, many of those people are signing letters opposing his candidacy. As a result, there's a void on Trump's campaign staff, and the individuals who rush to fill it turn out to be less experienced than the kinds of people who normally advise presidential candidates. And they turn out to be more comfortable with Trump's unorthodox stance towards Russia. And some have actual dealings with Russian agents or businessmen. To Russia, the situation presents a set of opportunities to form connections with and to influence the Trump campaign, opportunities they would never get under ordinary circumstances. The Russians see the openings in the form of people affiliated with the campaign. And so, over and over again, Russia reaches out to various Trump figures. And more often than not, those overtures are welcomed. Well before Robert Mueller is named special counsel, there's a Russia investigation already underway. The FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. How does that investigation get started? It all begins with a guy named George Papadopoulos. George Papadopoulos has been trying to join the Trump campaign since the summer of 2015. The campaign wasn't hiring then, so he goes to work for Republican presidential candidate Ben Carson. Then, in February 2016, he begins a job at a place called the London Center of International Law Practice. But he doesn't give up on working for Trump. As he was taking his position at the London Center, Papadopoulos contacted Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski via LinkedIn and emailed campaign official Michael Glasner about his interest in joining the Trump campaign. On March 2, 2016, Papadopoulos sent Glasner another message reiterating his interest. Glasner passed along word of Papadopoulos' interest to another campaign official, Joy Lutus, who notified Papadopoulos by email that she had been told by Glasner to introduce him to senior campaign aide Sam Clovis, the Trump campaign's national co-chair and chief policy advisor. Here's New York Times reporter Mark Mazzetti. He had originally reached out to Corey Lewandowski uh, to join the campaign. This was the sort of uh, you know, fly-by-night 2015 part of the Trump campaign uh, when there was a very, very small group of advisors. Uh, he doesn't really get much of a response from Lewandowski. Uh, he, make, he maintains contact with Sam Clovis, who becomes the sort of recruiter for the foreign policy team. And um, and so when the Carson campaign flames out, Papadopoulos starts looking to jump on the Trump wagon, which uh, by that time had been gaining steam. And it was becoming pretty clear that Trump, you know, might actually pull this thing off. He has no background in Russia. Um, and he'll say that he had a degree of expertise 
on gas and oil issues in particularly focusing on the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, where Turkey and Greece and Israel are all sort of jockeying for, you know, uh, supremacy on, on these issues. And that's what he considered his expertise. In March 2016, the Trump campaign is facing significant criticism for the lack of foreign policy and national security advisors. There's this period of time when Trump is becoming uh, the, the putative Republican nominee, and everyone's wondering who actually is advising him on foreign policy. A lot of the big names had already had signed on with other people, or they were starting to declare themselves never Trump. Mr. Trump, welcome to the Washington Post. Thank you. Thank you for making time. Uh, yeah, can you close those doors? We heard you might be announcing your foreign policy advisory team soon, if there's anything we you can share on that. We are going to be doing that. In fact, uh, very soon, I'd say during the week, we'll be announcing some, some names. It'll always grow. Any that you can start off with this morning with us? Well, you know, I hadn't thought in terms of doing it. Do you want I could give you some of the names? I, I wouldn't be delighted. I wouldn't mind. Um, Claude, do you have that list? I'll be a little more accurate with it. To address that issue, senior campaign officials asked Clovis to put a foreign policy team together on short notice. After receiving Papadopoulos's name, Clovis performed a Google search, learned that he had worked at the Hudson Institute, and believed he had credibility on energy issues. Clovis arranged to speak with Papadopoulos by phone to discuss joining the campaign as a foreign policy advisor. On March 6th, 2016, the two spoke. Papadopoulos recalled that Russia was mentioned as a topic, and he understood from the conversation that Russia would be an important aspect of the campaign's foreign policy. At the end of the conversation, Clovis offered Papadopoulos a role as a campaign foreign policy advisor, and Papadopoulos accepted. Okay, you ready? Take <laughs> notes. <laughs> Waleed Ferris, who you probably know, Carter Page, PhD, uh, George Papadopoulos, uh, he's an oil and energy consultant, excellent guy. So Trump uh, announces with some fanfare his team. Uh, it includes George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, several others. So Papadopoulos kind of comes out of nowhere if you're if you're thinking about it in terms of the Republican foreign policy establishment. He uh, had been an advisor to the Ben Carson campaign, and is someone who was young. He was in his late twenties and had worked at a think tank in Washington, but was certainly no household name at the time he was announced. He was working in London. So he was one of several people who, when they saw the list, uh, you know, were, had people scratching their heads. And uh, it was sort of famous at the time that he had listed on his resume uh, that he had done Model UN as a sort of big foreign policy credential. Papadopoulos agrees to join the Trump campaign as an advisor. But as is common for campaign advisors, he still has his day job, which is in London. A week after his call with Clovis, he travels to Rome for work. And while in Rome, he's introduced to a man named Joseph Mifsud. Mifsud is a Maltese national who worked as a professor at the London Academy of Diplomacy. Although Mifsud worked out of London and was also affiliated with the London Center, the encounter in Rome was the first time Papadopoulos met him. Mifsud maintained various Russian contacts while living in London. Among his contacts was a one-time employee of the IRA, the entity that carried out the Russian social media campaign. 
A week after he signs on, he's on a trip to Rome, and he meets a guy named Joseph Mifsud, who at first kind of blows him off. Mifsud is this actually London-based professor. He's Maltese, and he had kind of kicked around to different educational institutions, but did in fact have good ties with the Russian government. According to Papadopoulos, Mifsud at first seemed uninterested in him when they met in Rome. After Papadopoulos informed Mifsud about his role in the Trump campaign, however, Mifsud appeared to take greater interest in him. But after it becomes uh, announced that Papadopoulos is, uh, has joined the Trump campaign, all of a sudden Mifsud takes interest. And um, Papadopoulos has said this and he told, tells Mueller's team that Mifsud becomes very interested in developing a relationship with Papadopoulos. And you know, one thing leads to another, but pretty soon they're having meeting after meeting in London where they're basically talking about can we set up a big meeting between Trump and Putin. The two discussed Mifsud's European and Russian contacts and had a general discussion about Russia. Mifsud also offered to introduce Papadopoulos to European leaders and others with contacts to the Russian government. Papadopoulos told the office that Mifsud's claim of substantial connections with Russian government officials interested him. He thought that such connections could increase his importance as a policy advisor to the Trump campaign. So who is Joseph Mifsud? Both in the report and in the plea agreement with Papadopoulos, uh, the uh, Mueller's team, uh, you know, certainly infers that uh, Mifsud is acting kind of as a cutout for Russian intelligence. Uh, they say as much. They say Russian intelligence often employs academics and other influential people in other countries to sort of carry out their work. Um, there is no evidence that Mifsud is a, uh, a, a full-fledged GRU officer or SVR or, um, or any actual intelligence officer, but someone who um, they might develop, intelligence officers might develop in order to make contacts. I mean, Mueller is pretty clear that, that he believes that Mifsud is acting at the behest of the Russian services who are trying to make contact with the Trump team. The Mueller report offers a detailed timeline of Mifsud's contacts with Papadopoulos after they meet in Rome. On March 17, 2016, Papadopoulos returned to London. Four days later, candidate Trump publicly named him as a member of the Foreign Policy and National Security Advisory Team, chaired by Senator Jeff Sessions. A week after being announced as the Trump campaign foreign policy advisor, Papadopoulos and Mifsud meet in London, and Mifsud brings a guest. Mifsud was accompanied by a Russian female named Olga Polonskaya. Mifsud introduced Polonskaya as a former student of his who had connections to Vladimir Putin. Papadopoulos understood at the time that Polonskaya may have been Putin's niece, but later learned that this was not true. During the meeting, Polonskaya offered to help Papadopoulos establish contacts in Russia and stated that the Russian ambassador in London was a friend of hers. Papadopoulos and Mifsud meet in London, uh, and there's this mysterious woman who is with them. And it's unclear what exactly Mifsud says, but Papadopoulos at the time thought 
he might have been meeting Putin's niece. Uh, he then had to Google and find out that actually it wasn't Putin's niece. This woman was introduced as someone who, uh, again, might help gain entree for Papadopoulos uh, in circles in Moscow, again, toward this ultimate goal of possibly setting up a meeting between Trump and Putin. Now, recall, Papadopoulos is still to some degree, a fringe figure on the campaign. He'd been announced as part of this team, but he's really, he's ambitious. He is trying to make a name for himself. And it's very clear from the documents, from emails, et cetera, that he sees uh, this as a way for him to gain entree into the inner circle of the Trump campaign. If he can possibly broker this meeting between Putin and Trump, um, that's his ticket. Following his meeting with Mifsud, Papadopoulos sent an email to members of the Trump campaign's foreign policy advisory team. The subject line of the message was, quote, meeting with Russian leadership, including Putin, unquote. The message stated in pertinent part, quote, I just finished a very productive lunch with a good friend of mine, Joseph Mifsud, the director of the London Academy of Diplomacy, who introduced me to both Putin's niece and the Russian ambassador in London, who also acts as the deputy foreign minister. The topic of the lunch was to arrange a meeting between us and the Russian leadership to discuss U.S.-Russia ties under President Trump. They are keen to host us in a neutral city or directly in Moscow. They said the leadership, including Putin, is ready to meet with us and Mr. Trump should there be interest, waiting for everyone's thoughts on moving forward with this very important issue, unquote. Sam Clovis, the Trump senior policy advisor, responds to Papadopoulos's note. He CCs the rest of the foreign policy team and writes, Quote, this is most informative. Let me work it through the campaign. No commitments until we see how this plays out. My thought is that we probably should not go forward with any meeting with the Russians until we have had occasion to sit with our NATO allies. More thoughts later today. Great work, unquote. One week later, on March 31st, 2016, the campaign holds a meeting of Trump foreign policy advisors at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. Candidate Trump is there, as is then-Senator Jeff Sessions. During the meeting, each of the newly announced foreign policy advisors introduced themselves and briefly described their areas of experience or expertise. Papadopoulos spoke about his previous work in the energy sector and then brought up a potential meeting with Russian officials. Specifically, Papadopoulos told the group that he had learned through his contacts in London that Putin wanted to meet with candidate Trump and that these connections could help arrange that meeting. Trump and Sessions both reacted to Papadopoulos's statement. Papadopoulos and campaign advisor J.D. Gordon, who told investigators in an interview that he had a, quote, crystal clear, unquote, recollection of the meeting, have stated that Trump was interested in and receptive to the idea of a meeting with Putin. They're all around this table uh, uh, at the Trump Hotel, which is still under construction, and they're hashing over ideas about what you know what the Trump foreign policy uh, should look like. There were probably twelve people in that room or so, and a lot of people have different recollections. Uh, Papadopoulos certainly recalls Trump being amenable to the idea. Uh, that he was receptive, he thought it was a good idea. There's different. Uh, uh, accounts and whether Jeff Sessions was interested in the idea. But 
one thing we can be pretty certain of is that it is not dismissed out of hand. Nobody says this is a terrible idea. Papadopoulos did not understand Sessions or anyone in the Trump campaign to have directed that he refrain from making further efforts to arrange a meeting between the campaign and the Russian government. To the contrary, Papadopoulos told the office that he understood the campaign to be supportive of his efforts to arrange such a meeting. Yeah, Papadopoulos clearly thinks it's enough of a green light to uh, pursue this relationship that he'd been developing with Mifsud to see where it goes. And that is what he does. Upon returning to London, Papadopoulos continues to seek out Russian contacts through Mifsud and Polonskaya. Within a week of her initial March 24th meeting with him, Polonskaya attempted to send Papadopoulos a text message, which email exchanges show to have been drafted or edited by Mifsud addressing Papadopoulos's quote, wish to engage with the Russian Federation, unquote. When Papadopoulos learned from Mifsud that Polonskaya had tried to message him, he sent her an email seeking another meeting. Polonskaya responded the next day that she was back in St. Petersburg, but quote, would be very pleased to support Papadopoulos's initiatives between our two countries, unquote, and to meet him again. Papadopoulos stated in reply that he thought, quote, a good step, unquote, would be to introduce him to the Russian ambassador in London and that he would like to talk to the ambassador, quote, or anyone else you recommend about a potential foreign policy trip to Russia, unquote. Polonskaya later emailed Papadopoulos that she, quote, had already alerted my personal links to our conversation and your request. We are all very excited about the possibility of a good relationship with Mr. Trump, unquote. All of these various contacts and outreach are leading up to a breakfast meeting between Mifsud and Papadopoulos that takes place on April 25th, 2016, at the Andaz Hotel in London. It's at this meeting that Mifsud tells Papadopoulos that the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of hacked emails. Mifsud told Papadopoulos that he had met with high-level Russian government officials during his recent trip to Moscow. Mifsud also said that on the trip he learned that the Russians had obtained, quote, dirt, unquote, on candidate Hillary Clinton. As Papadopoulos later stated to the FBI, Mifsud said that the dirt was in the form of, quote, emails of Clinton, unquote, and that they had, quote, thousands of emails, unquote. For those of us following uh, this, uh, when this is revealed in October 2017, the fact that this offer had been made, or uh, at very least Papadopoulos was told about it, you know, it was a very key moment because it is for the first time we hear that uh, a Trump campaign advisor is told before there's anything released publicly about Hillary Clinton's emails that the Russians had them. George Papadopoulos has been told a very big secret, and he doesn't keep that secret to himself. On May 6, 2016, 10 days after that meeting with Mifsud, Papadopoulos suggested to a representative of a foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton. 
He has another meeting with the high commission, the Australian High Commissioner in London, who's the basically the Australia's effectively ambassador to London, and um, they are in the Kensington Wine Rooms having drinks in um, uh, the West End of London, and um, during that meeting, uh, Papadopoulos says to uh, the High Commissioner, a man named Alexander Downer, uh, just what Mifsud had told him, that uh, the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. This comment made to an Australian official is what sets off the entire Russia investigation in the United States, but not right away. It seems to be dropped for a while where it doesn't appear that Downer immediately reports this to anyone uh, either in Canberra or to the United States, um, although that's still a little bit unclear. But but in July of 2016, around uh, right after the time that the WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks email starts spilling out into public, that's when the Australians come to the American government and they say, Oh, by the way, there was this meeting in London in May between our high commissioner and a Trump uh, foreign policy aide where he had said that there had been this offer of dirt uh, by the Russians uh, to the Trump campaign. Um, This then becomes one of the uh, key pieces of evidence that leads the FBI to open, open its investigation at the end of July 2016. We'll digress for a moment to note that Mifsud has become the subject of some conspiracy theories designed to support the suggestion that somehow Papadopoulos was set up. But there's nothing in the Mueller report or elsewhere to support that notion. There is no evidence that the Australians set up the meeting as a way to possibly entrap Papadopoulos uh, or that Mifsud was anything other than what Mueller has said he was, which was some sort of cutout for the Russian government. Um, there's no evidence that uh, that Mifsud was working for Western intelligence uh, for this purpose. The general counsel of the FBI at the time, Jim Baker, also confirmed at a public event at the Brookings Institution that it was Papadopoulos's conversation with Downer that set off the Russia investigation. In was July of 2016, we got the information from the trusted, reliable foreign partner uh, that we have a deep relationship with, and so we had a high degree of confidence in that information coming to us about uh, George Papadopoulos' interactions with a person who claimed to have uh, emailed dirt on Hillary Clinton and that the Russians wanted to find some way to support the Trump campaign. That's the best of my recollection sitting here today about the information. That was the nugget of information that got everything going. But the important thing, I think, to remember that it gets said sometimes, but I don't think people focus on it enough, that the case was about Russia, period, full stop. That was the focus of the investigation. So when the Papadopoulos information comes across our radar screen, it's coming across uh, in the sense that we were always looking at Russia. This incident, the Papadopoulos information, is what triggered us going down this path. Throughout all of this, Papadopoulos is keeping the Trump campaign apprised of his communications with the Russians, and there are a lot of them. But notably, he's focused not on the emails or the dirt, but on arranging a Trump-Putin meeting. His communications are happening in the same period that Donald Trump Jr. is setting up a meeting at Trump Tower, New York, to get, quote, dirt on Hillary Clinton. And in the same period that the Trump campaign 
is reaching out to WikiLeaks directly and through Roger Stone to find out more about upcoming email releases. So the question becomes whether Papadopoulos told anyone on the campaign about what Mifsud said about dirt. Well, that's really the big question, isn't it? And one of, I guess, the enduring mysteries of uh, of this story, even after Mueller's report. The question really is, uh, did Papadopoulos tell anyone? And, I mean, on one hand, you would think that, uh, why wouldn't he have? I mean, this was someone who was clearly ambitious. Uh, this relationship was something that he saw as a way to uh, gain influence in the Trump campaign. All the campaign officials that Mueller interviewed say they don't recall Papadopoulos bringing this up. And Mueller's conclusion in the report is that no documentary evidence exists that Papadopoulos told anyone. Uh, and so... In a sense, that question hasn't been answered and may never get answered. And um, as it stands, there's no evidence that anyone in the inner circle uh, of the Trump campaign knew of this offer uh, before these emails went public. When interviewed, Papadopoulos and the campaign officials who interacted with him told the office that they could not recall Papadopoulos's sharing the information that Russia had obtained dirt on candidate Clinton in the form of emails or that Russia could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information about Clinton. Papadopoulos stated that he could not clearly recall having told anyone on the campaign and wavered about whether he accurately remembered an incident in which Clovis had been upset after hearing Papadopoulos tell Clovis that Papadopoulos thought they have her emails. The campaign officials who interacted or corresponded with Papadopoulos have similarly stated with varying degrees of certainty that he did not tell them. Papadopoulos has his own version of events. He's written a book. He's given a lot of interviews. His basic claim is that he was targeted by a deep state conspiracy to spy on the Trump campaign. I went into a plea with the government with my eyes closed. I was under the false assumption when I pled guilty. I was rushed into it without understanding what I had done wrong. Um, it was savage. In my, that's my opinion, and that's how I describe it in the book. Papadopoulos has kind of went on to have a second career. Um, you know, someone who is trying to sort of flip the uh, flip the telescope around, investigate the investigators, um, say this was all part of a deep state conspiracy to go after him, to go after the Trump campaign. The Mueller report offers no support for this sort of claim, and former FBI General Counsel Baker, for his part says that the FBI had an affirmative obligation to investigate. It's against the backdrop yeah. of a dump of emails over the summer that were attributed by various entities to the Russians in one way or another, and then and other things going on that summer, and this thing then lands in the middle of that. That's what then focuses us and triggers this, this course of investigation. It would have been, in my opinion, it would have been a dereliction of our duty not to investigate this information again. But it would have been highly, highly inappropriate uh, to, uh, for us not to pursue it. In October 2016, Papadopoulos is dismissed from the Trump campaign when an interview he gives to a Russian news agency generates some bad press. 
Papadopoulos isn't the only Trump foreign policy advisor whose activities with respect to Russia catch the attention of the FBI. Almost no one had heard of Carter Page when, in March 2016, Donald Trump publicly identifies him as a member of his foreign policy team advising on Russia. But Russian intelligence officials had known Carter Page for a long time. Russian intelligence officials had formed relationships with Page in 2008 and 2013, and Russian officials may have focused on Page in 2016 because of his affiliation with the campaign. During his time with the campaign, Page advocated pro-Russia foreign policy positions and traveled to Moscow in his personal capacity. Page had worked at Merrill Lynch's Moscow office on transactions involving the Russian government-owned energy company Gazprom and knew Gazprom's deputy chief financial officer. In 2008, Page founded his own firm and asked the Gazprom officer to work with him as a senior advisor. That wasn't the only contact. In 2013, Viktor Podobny, a Russian intelligence officer working covertly in the United States, met Page at an energy symposium in New York. The two began exchanging emails and met in person on multiple occasions. In a recorded conversation on April 8, 2013, Podobny told another intelligence officer that Page was interested in business opportunities in Russia. In Podobny's words, Page, quote, got hooked on Gazprom, thinking that if they have a project, he could rise up. It's obvious that he wants to earn lots of money, unquote. Podobny said that he had fed Page, quote, empty promises, unquote, that he would use his Russian business connections to help Page. Podobny's method of recruiting foreign sources was to promise them favors and then discard them once he obtained relevant information from them. In January 2016, Page is first introduced to Trump campaign officials by the chairman of the New York State Republican Party. Here's Rosalind Helderman, a reporter with The Washington Post and the co-author of the introduction to the Post edition of the Mueller Report. Carter Page is, uh, he was in the oil and gas industry. He was a businessman with an interest in Russia. That's basically all he was. He is interested in Donald Trump and what he's been saying about Russia. And uh, he, at some point, reaches out to Ed Cox, the relative of Richard Nixon, who was the head of the Republican Party in New York, and said that he was interested in volunteering for the Trump campaign. Ed Cox puts him in contact with the Trump campaign with Sam Clovis and Corey Lewandowski. And it happens to be in this time period when the Trump campaign is desperate for foreign policy advice because they can't get anyone from the traditional foreign policy establishment to endorse them. They announced in March of 2016 that Carter Page was on this new advisory group that they had put together uh, of uh, advisors, foreign policy, national security advisors for the Trump campaign. In communications with campaign officials, Page repeatedly touted his high-level contacts in Russia and his ability to forge connections between candidate Trump and senior Russian government officials. For example, Page sent an email to senior campaign officials stating that he had, quote, spent the past week in Europe and had been in discussions with some individuals with close ties to the Kremlin, unquote, who recognized that Trump could have a, quote, game-changing effect in bringing the end of the new Cold War, unquote. 
the email stated that through his high-level contact, Page believed that, quote, a direct meeting in Moscow between Mr. Trump and Putin could be arranged, unquote. Page closed the email by criticizing U.S. sanctions on Russia. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Page's work on the campaign is substantive. He provides foreign policy and energy-related speeches that candidate Trump delivers. Trump chief policy advisor Sam Clovis expresses appreciation and praises Page's work to other campaign officials. That work and Page's access to Trump do not go unnoticed in Russia. In July of 2016, Page is invited to give two speeches at the New Economic School in Moscow. July of 2016, Carter Page pops up because he goes to Russia uh, and he gives a speech at a Russian university. Uh, and that speech talks about how America should be closer to Russia. Uh, he also gives some interviews where he starts talking about how, uh, you know, people he knows in the business world have been really hurt by sanctions. And they're super optimistic that if Donald Trump is elected president, sanctions will be lifted and, you know, good times will be here again. When Page delivers a second speech at the new economic school commencement, the Russian deputy prime minister is there as well. The two shake hands, and the deputy prime minister makes statements to Page about working together in the future. Page also meets with friends and associates he knows from his time in Russia, including officials from Russian energy companies. In his speech at the new economic school, Page slams U.S. policy towards Russia, praises Putin, and touts the possibility of a new relationship between Russia and the U.S. Recent efforts by Western scholars and, and leaders to denigrate public leaders from the region have unnecessarily uh, perpetuated many Cold War tendencies by deepening suspicions from that, that bygone era. Some of my related analysis has demonstrated a range of alternative perspectives and approaches that may help to illuminate further uh, opportunities in the future. On July 8, 2016, while he was in Moscow, Page emailed several campaign officials and stated that he would send, quote, a readout soon regarding some incredible insights and outreach I've received from a few Russian legislators and senior members of the presidential administration here, unquote. 
On July 9, 2016, Page emailed Clovis, indicating that the Russian deputy prime minister, in a private conversation, expressed strong support for Mr. Trump and a desire to work together toward devising better solutions in response to the vast range of current international problems. In July 2016, after returning from Russia, Page travels to the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. While there, he meets Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. Page later emails campaign officials that Ambassador Kislyak was very worried about candidate Clinton's worldviews. Following the convention, when Page's trip to Moscow and his advocacy for pro-Russia foreign policy draws media scrutiny, the campaign distances itself from Page. On September 23, 2016, Yahoo News reported that U.S. intelligence officials were investigating whether Page had opened private communications with senior Russian officials to discuss U.S. sanctions policy under a possible Trump administration. A campaign spokesman told Yahoo News that Page had, quote, no role, unquote, in the campaign and that the campaign was, quote, not aware of any of his activities, past or present, unquote. On September 24, 2016, Page is formally removed from the campaign. Nonetheless, when Page takes a personal trip to Moscow after the election in December 2016, he meets again with the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia, who asks Page if he can facilitate connections with individuals involved in the transition to begin a discussion of future cooperation. Some of this is something of a black box. Like, I, you know, the Mueller report doesn't tell us what they talked about at that dinner. It's not clear that the Mueller investigators were able to figure that out. In fact, one of the things they specifically tell us is that they were not able to establish with complete confidence everything that Carter Page did while he was in Moscow, particularly in that July trip, uh, which comes during the campaign. And Carter Page has uh, denied uh, that he had meetings with high-level government officials. Um, but Mueller's team was not able to sort of definitively figure out everything he did. Now, I've, I've certainly been in uh, a number of meetings with him. If you look at the definition of meeting in Russian and in a Russian context, that you were using the Russian definition of meetings. But I'm just asking you straight up, like, just for a straight answer, you're saying I can't confirm or deny. USA Today's reported it. You told one reporter I had no meetings with the Russians. Now you're telling me I had no meetings with the Russians about the things they were talking about. I'm just trying to get a straight answer. Like, did you meet Sergey Kislyak? In Cleveland, did you talk to him? I, I'm not going to deny that I talked with him. Did anybody ever say to you anything about, hey, you know, here in Russia, we have some stuff that might help you? Absolutely. Not, no, not, not in that sense, no. You know, now that we're starting to learn the truth, it couldn't get any better for me. In the fall of 2016, Department of Justice investigators asked the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the so-called FISA court, for permission to collect Page's electronic communications. Here's former FBI General Counsel Baker speaking at Brookings about that decision. Had a number of different threads. We were looking at a number of different people. And I knew that we were looking at Carter Page. And so at some point in time, I found out that one of the investigative techniques that the agents wanted to use was a FISA. The FISA court approves the application in October 2016 about a month after Page leaves the Trump campaign. The wiretap order is renewed three times in 2017, 
including twice by Trump-era Justice Department officials. That FISA application became the subject of political controversy and conspiracy theories, primarily involving allegations that the application relied in part on an unverified dossier prepared by a former British intelligence official. I don't understand how on four different occasions a FISA warrant was issued against an American citizen based on a dossier. It suggests, as we've said from the beginning, that there was a brazen plot to illegally exonerate Hillary Clinton to then frame Donald Trump with a falsely created crime. To me, this is a breakthrough. We've been asking the question, how high up? We know that the deep state actors are now turning on each other. About the Steele dossier and the Democrats uh, who used a foreign spy to rove the globe and get information. The Inspector General of the Department of Justice has agreed to review the matter. Here's Jim Baker again. We need to have the Inspector General's office to make sure that the American public, the courts, the Attorney General, the rest of the government, Congress, have confidence that the enormous power that is entrusted to people at the FBI and the Department of Justice is used wisely, appropriately, lawfully, efficiently. And so, you know, I welcome the accountability. They will, I'm sure that they will find things that I didn't know at the time, maybe that others didn't know at the time, I was comfortable that the application that we were submitting to the FISA court was consistent with the Constitution and laws of the United States and was consistent with the requirements of the FISA statute and lawful. And it was, there was probable cause that was, in my mind, sufficient to pass muster and pass review and that it would be approved by the, by the FISA court. And now, we come to Paul Manafort. You might remember him from that June 9th Trump Tower meeting. Unlike George Papadopoulos and Carter Page, who are peripheral figures in the campaign, Manafort has a central role. He is Donald Trump's presidential campaign chairman and chief strategist through crucial months of the 2016 campaign. The story of Manafort is a very complicated one. But here's a short version. Before, during, and after his time with the Trump campaign, Manafort is sorting his way through messy business entanglements with Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs. It's necessary to know a bit about Manafort's background, his work on behalf of pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine and how he fell out of their favor, in order to understand how Manafort tried to return to their good graces by cultivating a relationship with Donald Trump. Here's Franklin Four, a journalist for The Atlantic who has covered Manafort extensively. Paul Manafort is a Washington-based political consultant who made his name in the 1980s as a lobbyist uh, in Ronald Reagan's Washington. And um, he was a young gun and partnered with other young guns, including Roger Stone and Lee Atwater, and they created what was the, the hottest shop in Washington, D.C. They created a shop that was both helping Republicans get elected to the House and to the Senate, and then they had another part of their operation where they turned around and they, they lobbied the people they just helped get elected on behalf of corporate clients. For years, Manafort lobbies Washington on behalf of dozens of clients, 
including violent dictators around the world. He also travels the world as a consultant and a political gun for hire. In 2005, he's hired by a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. In approximately 2005, Manafort began working for Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who has a global empire involving aluminum and power companies and who is closely aligned with Vladimir Putin. Deripaska used Manafort to install friendly political officials in countries where Deripaska had business interests. Manafort's company earned tens of millions of dollars from its work for Deripaska and was loaned millions of dollars by Deripaska as well. Manafort befriends other pro-Russian oligarchs, and in 2010, Manafort scores a huge win. He is instrumental in the election of a pro-Russian president in Ukraine, a man named Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych is a gray, post-Soviet, uncharismatic politician. He's somebody who'd actually spent time in jail in the 1970s uh, for assault and for robbery. Manafort and his people managed to remake Yanukovych. They dress him in a different suit. They change his hairstyle. They hone his messaging. And this party that he was part of, the Party of Regions, this pro-Russian party, which had been on the outs and had been seen as a real villain in the Ukrainian narrative, all of a sudden manages an upset victory in parliamentary elections. And Paul Manafort is suddenly hailed as a genius. And he's in Ukraine, and he starts to find that he kind of likes hanging out with these Ukrainian oligarchs. He kind of likes their um, mafioso style. He likes their extravagant lifestyle. They're silly rich, and um, they can, they're willing to pay him so much more than he could get paid in any part of the world. Manafort is living the high life in Ukraine, and life is good. But then, in 2014, everything falls apart. There are fast-moving developments in Ukraine. Overnight, it appears the country's ousted president is now in Russia. Ukraine stands on the brink of disaster. The ousted president is wanted for mass murder and on the run in the south. This is a crisis for Manafort. Um, it's a crisis because he's lost, he's had one client, and that one client has suddenly been deposed from power. And he's so over-leveraged. Manafort's running out of cash, and it gets worse. He's also racked up a huge debt to his old client, Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, to the tune of $20 million. And Deripaska wants his money back. You know, it's it's one thing to kind of um, to scam maybe an, you know an elderly couple in California. It's another to scam Oleg Deripaska because Deripaska's reputation is such that he became the aluminum magnate in in Russia by uh, winning a very very bloody um, cadaver filled war to take control over the, 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 the newly privatized industry. His reputation is such that he'd be the last man in the world that you'd want to steal from. By the time Manafort joins the Trump campaign in March 2016, 
He has no meaningful income, and he's deeply in debt to a powerful Russian oligarch. And yet, he wants to work for Trump for free. After being recommended by Roger Stone and another associate, Manafort travels to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump. He's hired almost on the spot. Why does Manafort work for free when he's mired in debt to an unforgiving Russian oligarch? The short answer is that Manafort sees a way to repay his debts. To understand how this is all supposed to work, you need to know about a guy named Konstantin Kalimnik. Konstantin Kalimnik, a.k.a. Kostya, a.k.a. KK, is um, a diminutive uh, guy who was born in eastern Ukraine who went to study with uh, Russian military intelligence where he learned Swedish and he learned English. Um, The fact that he spent this time in the GRU, in Russian military intelligence, is something that kind of cast a cloud over the rest of his career because it said once you enter the GRU, you don't really ever exit the GRU. He goes to work for Paul Manafort in 2004, just after Manafort comes to work in the Ukraine. And Manafort obviously doesn't speak the language. And so Kalimnik is in nearly every meeting that he has. And Manafort comes to think of Kalimnik as his alter ego. He calls him my Russian brain. The Mueller report includes a lot of detail about Kalimnik's ties to Russian intelligence. But here's the report's bottom line. Manafort told the office that he did not believe Kalimnik was working as a Russian spy. The FBI, however, assesses that Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence. Now that we know who Kalimnik is, let's return to March 2016. Paul Manafort, in debt to Deripaska, has just accepted a job volunteering for the Trump campaign. Are you running this campaign now? Is that the fairest way to look at it? Donald Trump is running this campaign, and, uh, and I'm working directly for Donald Trump, but I'm working with the whole team as well. Immediately upon joining the campaign, Manafort directed his deputy, Rick Gates, to prepare separate memoranda addressed to Oleg Deripaska and three Ukrainian oligarchs. The memorandum described Manafort's appointment to the Trump campaign and indicated his willingness to consult on Ukrainian politics in the future. On March 30th, 2016, Gates emailed the memorandum and a press release announcing Manafort's appointment to Kalimnik for translation and dissemination. Manafort later followed up with Kalimnik to ensure his messages had been delivered, emailing on April 11th, 2016, to ask whether Kalimnik had shown, quote, our friends, unquote, the media coverage of his new role. Kalimnik replied, quote, absolutely, every article, unquote. Manafort asked Kalimnik how he can use his new role in the Trump campaign to, quote, get whole with Deripaska. Sometime thereafter, Manafort starts to give Kalimnik internal Trump campaign documents through his deputy, Rick Gates. Gates reported that Manafort instructed him in April 2016 or early May 2016 to send Kalimnik campaign internal polling data and other updates so that Kalimnik in turn could share it with Ukrainian oligarchs. Gates understood that the information would also be shared with Deripaska. And there's more. 
Manafort is willing to go beyond just sharing polling data. Manafort replied that Kalimnik should tell Deripaska that, quote, if he needs private briefings, we can accommodate, unquote. Manafort said he never gave Deripaska a briefing, but noted that if Trump won, Deripaska would want to use Manafort to advance whatever interests he had in the United States and elsewhere. It's worth noting, Manafort takes steps to hide his efforts. Gates stated that in accordance with Manafort's instruction, he periodically sent Kalimnik polling data via WhatsApp. Gates then deleted the communications on a daily basis. But communication with Klimnik doesn't stay on WhatsApp. On two occasions during the campaign, Manafort meets with Klimnik in person. The first meeting takes place on May 7, 2016, in New York City. Gates arranged for Kalimnik to take a 3 a.m. train to meet Manafort in New York for breakfast on May 7th. According to Manafort, during the meeting, he and Kalimnik talked about events in Ukraine, and Manafort briefed Kalimnik on the Trump campaign, expecting Kalimnik to pass the information back to individuals in Ukraine and elsewhere. The second meeting, on August 2, 2016, is a little more suspicious. On August 2nd, um, Kalimnik comes to New York to meet with Manafort and the deputy campaign manager, Rick Gates, who's also a protege of Paul Manafort. And they come and they discuss, it seems like, several things. One is that Gates and Manafort give Kalimnik polling data to take back to uh, Ukraine and to pass along to Deripaska. And it's very, very detailed polling data. It's not just top-line polling data. It seems like there are a lot of internals that were passed along as well. And uh, Manafort discusses a peace plan um, in eastern Ukraine that would take his old patron, Viktor Yanukovych, who's in exile in Moscow, and would plop him down in the eastern Russian-occupied part of Ukraine and would make him kind of the Russian puppet leader of this part of the country. Um, And the question that hovers over over all of this is, number one, why did Manafort act constantly like he had something to hide? Because after this meeting at the cigar club, he and Gates slip slip out of one door and Kalimnik slips out of a separate door. So they, they're, they're, they're not exactly acting like they have a meeting that they care for the rest of the world to learn about. Secondly, it's, you know, what was he really trying to get out of all of this? Why did he slip this polling data to Kalimnik? Why was he talking about this peace plan? What, 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 what was he, was he willing to trade something in the Trump campaign for results in another place? The Mueller report acknowledges that there are a lot of unanswered questions about Manafort's interactions with Kalimnik. Because of questions about Manafort's credibility and our team's limited ability to gather evidence on what happened to the polling data after it was sent to Kalimnik, the office could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with it. 
The office also did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort's sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election, which had already been reported by U.S. media outlets at the time of the August 2nd meeting. Nor did the investigation establish that Manafort otherwise coordinated with the Russian government on its election interference efforts. By the end of the summer 2016, reports about Manafort's ties to sketchy Ukrainian oligarchs reach a fever pitch. Guarding the Trump campaign, uh, Paul Manafort, just two days after being demoted, word that Manafort has resigned from the Trump campaign. He is stepping down. He was the campaign chair. Stunning to say the least. Manafort resigns from the campaign on August 19th, 2016 but he continues to advise campaign officials, including Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, and Trump himself. And Manafort doesn't stop contact with Klimnik, nor cease his efforts to leverage his relationship to the Trump campaign, not even after the election. Manafort told the office that in the wake of Trump's victory, he was not interested in an administration job. Manafort instead preferred to stay on the, quote, outside, unquote, and monetize his campaign position to generate business, given his familiarity and relationship with Trump and the incoming administration. Manafort appeared to follow that plan as he traveled to the Middle East, Cuba, South Korea, Japan, and China, and was paid to explain what a Trump presidency would entail. Manafort's activities in early 2017 included meetings related to Ukraine and Russia, the first meeting which took place in Madrid, Spain in January 2017 was with a man who had previously worked at the Russian embassy in the United States, was a senior executive at a Deripaska company, and was believed to report directly to Deripaska. Remember the peace plan for eastern Ukraine that Konstantin Klimnik brings up during his August 2nd meeting with Manafort? It turns out this isn't the last time he and Manafort discuss it. Manafort told the office that around the time of the presidential inauguration in January, he met with Kalimnik and a Ukrainian oligarch in Alexandria, Virginia. During this meeting, Kalimnik again discussed the Yanukovych peace plan that he had broached at the August 2nd meeting and in a detailed December 8, 2016 email, which said, quote, all that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from DT, unquote, an apparent reference to President-elect Trump. DT could have peace in Ukraine basically within a few months after inauguration, unquote. Klimnik and Manafort meet in person on February 26, 2017, in Madrid, a fact Manafort denies in his first two interviews with Mueller's office. Manafort only admits to the meeting after being confronted with evidence showing that he and Klimnik were in Madrid at the same time. The fact that Manafort lies to the special counsel about this meeting and other matters and conceals evidence means there are still unanswered questions. The investigation did not uncover evidence of Manafort's passing along information about Ukrainian peace plans to the candidate or anyone else in the campaign or the administration. The office was not, however, able to gain access to all of Manafort's electronic communications. In some instances, messages were sent using encryption applications. 
And while Manafort denied that he spoke to members of the Trump campaign or the new administration about the peace plan, he lied to the office and the grand jury about the peace plan and his meetings with Kalimnik. These are just the stories of three people playing out at the same time as dozens of contacts between the Trump campaign and Russians. PBS NewsHour recaps just a part of this section of the report. The Moscow Trump Tower project is just one source of Russian contacts. Mueller outlines about a dozen of them in total. They vary widely. Campaign aide Carter Page meets with Russians and is paid to give a speech in Russia. Aide J.D. Gordon says he pushed for a change in the Republican platform to water down tough language about Russia and Ukraine. Policy advisor Michael Flynn gives speeches in Russia and has numerous contacts with the Russian ambassador, including a discussion of softening sanctions. Foreign policy and national security advisor Jeff Sessions also meets with the Russian ambassador. Campaign chairman Paul Manafort regularly shares internal polling data with a man tied to Russian intelligence. And fellow Trump aide George Papadopoulos repeatedly meets with a different man connected to Russian intelligence who tells Papadopoulos the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton. For all of these connections, Mueller gives dates and times often to the very minute. Mark Mazzetti explains the difficulty in putting all of the pieces together. All of these dozens or you know, 100 or so contacts between Russians and the Trump members of the Trump campaign, Trump advisors, Trump friends, Trump hangers on. Um, a lot of them seem to be all um, for different purposes, right? Uh, some were seeking business uh, deals. Some were trying to gain influence in the campaign. Uh, kind of everyone on the Trump side had had different agendas. Some indeed were trying to help Donald Trump get get elected. Um, and so um, a lot of it, though, doesn't necessarily add up into one giant conspiracy that um, that that fits neatly together, um, which also, I think, is speaks to perhaps the haphazardness of the Russian effort. Uh, the Russians themselves, uh, and if you ask Russians, they'll tell you this, that, that they don't have as coherent a strategy as Americans might think they might, right? They have the GRU have its hacking and leaking strategy. They're, the IRA has its social media strategy. But it is not as if someone is um, uh, like a puppet master directing every single contact in uh, between a Russian and a Trump advisor. Um, this is all sort of spread out. It's more diffuse. And... And it's clear that Mueller's team has difficulty making sense of all of these different contacts and trying to draw a through line through them all. The Russian outreach is sprawling and elaborate. It touches George Papadopoulos, an ambitious unknown looking to make a name, who learns that the Russians have dirt in the form of Clinton emails. It touches Carter Page, a familiar face to the Russians, who suddenly joins the Trump campaign, pushing views sympathetic to the Kremlin. And it touches Paul Manafort, a shady political gun for hire, who finds himself deeply in debt to a Russian oligarch and thinks that maybe Donald Trump is his ticket out of trouble. Dozens of pieces of the Russian effort are quietly in motion. And then, suddenly, Something happens that almost no one saw coming. Not in Moscow, not in London, not in Washington, D.C. 
Donald J. Trump is elected president of the United States. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, we can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon and TV personality capping his improbable political journey with an astounding upset victory. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States. Thank you for listening to part five of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Vishnu Kanan. Scripts by Susan Hennessy, Margaret Taylor, and Michaela Fogel. Additional assistance by Eugenia Lostry, Hadley Baker, and Jacob Schultz. Special thanks to Mark Mazzetti, Franklin Floor, Rosalind Helderman, Jim Baker, PBS NewsHour, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, subscribe to our newsletter, and support our mission. Until next time. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.